Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Now, you're very welcome to Saturday's Down to Business. I'm Bobby Kerr with you all the way till one o'clock. You can email, email us at downtobusiness at newstalk.com or I'm open on Twitter at Bobby Kerr. Hashtag is Bobby Means Biz. Now, we have a different and very special show for you today. So all week long, we've been here in Singapore for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year CEO Retreat. The 24 finalists are here with over 70 of the alumni of the program. All week long, we've been hearing from some amazing business owners and business academics based here in Singapore. As well as that, we've been exploring Singapore. So for the next two hours, we're going to bring you a flavour of all that, a good place to start is with Enterprise Ireland. Now I'm hugely delighted to welcome to the programme uh, the Enterprise Ireland Director for ASEAN and he's Mr Kevin Ryan. Kevin, you're very welcome to the programme. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you're out here four years, Kevin. Uh, tell us a little bit about your brief out here for Enterprise Ireland. What do you actually do? Yeah, um, well, basically, I came out here four years ago just before uh, COVID started to hit. And really, our prime role here and really how we make a difference with companies is our network, our market intelligence. It's the contacts that we have and being able to create opportunities and support our companies in these markets um, because we do a fantastic job in Ireland in terms of investment and skills and leadership and collaboration with our universities but when they get to internationalize and to come to these overseas markets uh, it's really the doors we can help open in such a culturally diverse region it's hugely important okay so let's talk about Singapore let's talk about similarities with Ireland first maybe so what are they yeah I mean uh, two gateways to massive trading blocks I mean Ireland as we all know is a gateway to Europe five million plus people huge amount of uh, foreign direct investment has come into Ireland over recent years, highly intelligent workforce, uh, young, energetic, and again, the same could be said for here, 12,000 kilometres away, I mean, it's an island, uh, 100 times smaller than Ireland, so you could basically fit the entire population, 5.5 million people, into an area the size of Louth, so it's it's a tiny tiny spot they call it the red dot uh, and uh, it's it's very similar it's so singapore is at the the gateway to southeast asia 670 million people uh, massive massive market with massive opportunities if we talk about um you know companies coming into a new market often the mistakes that are made are around not understanding the culture Uh, What is the culture in Singapore? There's many different nationalities here, so is is it a complex culture? It's, it's, it can be, I mean, but again, a, part, a lot of what we do when we engage with companies and we, we engage with them before they come out here and we, we always encourage them to engage with us early because again, we can help stop any mistakes that they might make in the future. So Singapore 
99% of the country is spoken by English. Um, you have a big Malay, you have a big Indian population out here. But again, it's, it's the can-do attitude, it's the willingness and desire and ease of doing business out here. It's, it's, it is very easy, um, but again, with our support, and I strongly encourage companies to engage with us, to engage with our diaspora, our chamber out here as well, to talk to us uh, and, and we can help stop any mistakes before they happen. Things that help you on the ground out here to help your clients. Visits from Irish politicians, mm -hmm. trade missions. How do they actually help? Um, it's, it's something that is hugely underestimated and people really don't see it until they actually experience it. So obviously I came out here just before COVID and we had a huge lockdown across the world. Uh, and when, when COVID started to relax out here, we quickly then started to encourage ministers and, and trade missions to start again. So last year we were very, very support, well supported by uh, Tonishta, uh, Taoiseach, uh, our Minister for, for Agriculture came as well. So that was towards the tail end of last year. And in terms of what that really means, so culturally, um, having a Minister of the Day or having a Tonishta or a Prime Minister of the Day come here, it matters a huge amount because they see that and they see the credibility and the, the how our government is supporting our companies. And it really lends a lot of weight to what our companies are trying to achieve out here. Okay. Would a direct flight to Dublin from Singapore be helpful? For sure. I mean, uh, it's something that we have been really, really trying to push. Uh, obviously, the new airport and the new runway in Dublin has really helped. Um, and now that, uh, that, that the markets are all open again, it's something we're, we're engaging with the airlines here because it is something that is of value. So having a direct connection from Ireland to here, you can get direct connections into every other part of Europe um, but not to Ireland. So it's something that is high on our agenda to try and push and to encourage the airlines here in this region to come directly to Ireland. Because again, Ireland is a stop then onto the US as well. And having that pre-clearance as well is of huge value to, to a lot of American companies that are here going back to the States. You mentioned earlier uh, that somebody described Singapore as Asia light. Um, does that mean that, or does that infer that it's a good place to cut your teeth and then maybe use as a springboard into the other markets of Vietnam and uh, Kuala Lumpur and those other countries that you mentioned. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I, I mentioned the ease of doing business here. So Singapore have worked very hard to create an environment here for companies to, to be able to do business and to do business well. And it is, it's, it's an easy jump off point from here to the rest of the region. So literally on our doorstep we've got Indonesia 270 million people, Vietnam 100 million people, Philippines 80, Thailand 80, Malaysia is right beside us. So again you've got massive massive markets. So having a base in Singapore similar to the, the, the work in, in, in Europe where you have the European and the EU, here it's the, the ASEAN states. So again being based here and that's one of the things we really encourage our companies to do is to have a presence here because that really really matters and not just coming out on a plane and going back home again it's having a presence here which really really helps companies to do business and to win business in the markets here kevin ryan director for asian for enterprise ireland thanks so much for talking to me thanks bobby
standing here in the rain. You won't believe this, but I'm inside and it's raining. I'm here at the Gardens of the Bay in Singapore. I'm inside. I'm in a, an amazing place. It's actually an avatar, the movie Avatar, an avatar experience. So it's a rainforest. It's indoors. I'm standing beside what I think is one of the biggest waterfalls I've ever seen. Um, the place is all foliage. It reminds me of the Eden Project in Cornwall, which I was at recently. So this is really hard to imagine in the heat of Singapore, inside a tropical forest and a massive, massive Niagara Falls behind me. Now we're here in Singapore for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year CEO retreat and we've been hearing presentations from some fascinating people like this one. I'm delighted to welcome to the program uh, Claudia Zeisberger. She's a senior affiliate professor of entrepreneurship and family enterprise at INSEAD. Uh, you're very welcome to the program, Claudia. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, we listened to you earlier, and again, I wanted to share with our listeners maybe some of your wisdom around some world demographics that are really, really interesting and quite frightening, I would suggest, at certain levels, but also that present amazing opportunities uh, for business, uh, for commerce, for industry, uh, giving the shifting demographics. So maybe at a high level, we might just look at some of those. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think they are quite as frightening as, uh, as you mentioned. I mean, they may be surprising, and I get this quite regularly, that people, but it's, it's, it's simple math. I mean, ultimately, what you do, you just count babies, right, in the various countries. Right. So if we look at the world population and the shifting sands that are there, so we've got, you know, maybe surprisingly for some people, we've got huge economies like China that are stagnating, they're going to shrink, and then we've got the emergence of Africa. Maybe give us a little bit of your wisdom around those headlines. Yeah. So, I mean, if you paint a picture right now, you have about 1.4 billion people living in China, right. 1.4 billion in India, 1.4 billion in the West, and if you basically balance all this out and then take a step back in 1.4 billion in Africa. So if you go back a little bit in time, China used to be significantly larger than Africa. It was smaller overall, but it was larger than Africa. As I said, right now, both China and Africa are the same size in 2023. Fast forward to 2100. Africa will be, at that point, 10 times larger than China. Not just because Africa has grown, or will continue to grow until 2100, but also because China's population is really dropping. Right. From 1.4 billion today, by 2100 we will be at around just north of 300 million people in China. Just from a pure back-to-opportunity set, from a pure market point of view, your market in China, if you're selling into China today, in the next 70 years, will be shrinking significantly. Because it doesn't matter what you're selling, you need people there as a baseline. There's another, I suppose, piece of information that you shared with us around 
the aging population and the number of people that we have in the various economies that are over 65. Talk to us a little bit about that. So the aging, the good old aging population uh, <laughs> demographics, yes. So we have today about 700 million 65-year-olds right. like, around the world. By 2043, that number will have grown to 1.4 billion. There will be 1.4 billion 65-year-olds on this planet. This will be, by the way, the first time in the history of planet Earth that we will have more older people than younger people. Wow. And what do you see as the major implications behind those numbers? The major implication is that we will need different products. Yeah. So just think about, um, I like to look at average ages of countries. If a country is 28 years old, you have a certain need. What do you do at 28, when you're 28 years old? You want to buy a better car, you're building a house for your family, you have a growing family, you have, means you have a growing need for better, larger transportation, and so on. You are basically overall investing in your life. Yeah. When you're 48 years old, you basically have everything. Not every, you don't need another golf set, you don't need an extra car, you basically have everything. Your consumption level starts tapering off. Yeah. And obviously at 65, by that time you're hopefully, in most parts of the world, long retired. And you're not investing anymore. The kids are out of the house, the kids have gone to university, you're not paying for that anymore. All of a sudden, your demand is very different. So, if you're looking at a planet full of 65 years olds, what do we need? We need basically hip replacements, sp uh, spare, spare parts, maybe some more <laughs> golf clubs, even though on the golf club side, just another part, um, what we've seen in the US, the younger generation is not playing golf anymore. Yeah, the wow. younger generation in the US in the last couple of years, we've closed hundreds of golf clubs down just simply because people, it's not a, it's not a fashion anymore. Yeah. So the next generation, so there will be, there will be flavors, there will be fashion. What is the next generation like? But I think we all can kind of agree, you know, what, what do 65 year olds needs, right? You don't need a family car anymore. You're going to buy a sports car, maybe a sports car for yourself and for your husband. So maybe an extra set of golf clubs, you start traveling to visit the grandchildren. So flying, but I mean, flying, again, appropriate for older people. Yeah. You probably don't want to sit in a tight economy class anymore. So there are all kinds of opportunities. Yeah, I know that's really amazing what you say. When we look at uh, the 65-year-olds, the 65-year-old today or in 20 years' time is very different to the 65-year-old of 50 years ago. Absolutely. So, I mean, think about from a um, just investment point of view. I think we're nowadays we're much more conscious about um, how fitness impacts the way you're aging. So, people are nowadays we're not talking anymore so much about increasing the lifespan of uh, a population, but increasing the health span of a population. Yeah. Health span in the sense the time that you remain healthy. So usually, um, I just recently listened to a talk, a, um, around 55, you usually start to have, this usually a measure where we look at chronic diseases. So anyone basically from 55 onwards, when does a population is 
when does a population see more than three chronic diseases hitting one person? Yeah. Which is usually then when you become a real heavy burden for, for hospitals and for the health insurance. And that kind of time span from your retirement until you hit three chronic diseases, if we can push that out as we're living longer, then we will see a higher quality of life as well. Because yeah. it's not just about living longer. You want to live healthy. You want to be a, have a productive retirement age as well. So there's a lot of investment going into that right now. There are quite a few um, developments, especially in Singapore. The Singapore government is investing quite heavily into improving the health span of the population, ensuring that the population overall, as it ages, stays healthy longer. Right. Well, listen, it's a fascinating subject, and it really, really has stimulated a lot of people, got people thinking. The stats, as you've laid them out, are truly fascinating. So, Dr. Claudia Zeisberger, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Claudia Zeisberger, they're talking to me about the fascinating world of demographics. You're listening to a special show here in Singapore, where we've been here all week as part of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year program. Up next from here are some of the finalists that are foodies. Now, continuing our chat with some of this year's finalists here in Singapore as part of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Annual CEO Retreat, I want to turn now to the subject of food and indeed food inflation. A number of this year's finalists are doing great things in the food space and have keen insights into how the food landscape is actually looking. I'm delighted now to be joined by Jar Killian from The Lunch Bag, Tom Kyo from Kyo's Crisps and Michael McCambridge from McCambridge bread and bakery. You're all very welcome to the program, guys. Thank you. Um, I might start with you, Jar. Um, firstly, if you'd tell us who you are and a little bit about your business. Um, how you doing, Bobby? My name is Jar, and myself and my business partner, Ray, are here um, representing The Lunch Bag. So we are Ireland's first uh, school meal provider for non-DASH schools. So parents can download our app, order their lunch from over 1,900 different combinations, and we deliver it to the classroom the next day in compostable packaging. That sounds absolutely breathtakingly fantastic. So just so I can get my head around this. So you're working out in Nina in a, I think you're in the old Dawn Meats plant there. And you're, so if I'm in a school in Sligo uh, and my son or daughter comes home and says they'd like uh, an apple juice, a sandwich with ham in it, uh, you can take that order as late as 12... We're actually moving it to four o'clock. So as late as four o'clock the previous day, and my Johnny or Mary will have his sandwich and his apple juice uh, the next day. Correct. Well, uh, hopefully there'll be a bit more adventurous than that now, Bobby. <laughs> but um, so, <laughs> so basically, um, what would happen is the school signs up with us, so we would sell to the school. In that, we um, would approach the school to see if they're interested in having the service, yeah. and if they are, well, then we will, I suppose, market to the parents. Then, and we would have. On average, regardless of demographics, regardless of county towns land, we have a 78% download in a school. Um, and we're currently now, we're only in production, I suppose, 120 weeks because of COVID and whatnot. Um, but we would have, like, a, 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 our uptake in the schools. One in four children in Ireland can now order from us. Wow. And just before we bring in our other guests, Jar, one other very important point is you're actually paid before the sandwich leaves the depot in, 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 in Nina. Is that, is that also the case? Uh, uh, absolutely. So parents would up 
upload their money to uh, like an online account to our uh, to their app yeah. and then the money deducts from that so we give them little notifications when we feel like they're running a bit too low on their credit and then they can either manually top up or automatically top up so yeah we're, we're paid before it goes out the door these are business models <laughs> i really really like let's bring in our next guest now he's michael mccambridge from mccambridge's bread michael you're very welcome to the program thank you bobby Good now, Michael, you're around a long time. Uh, it's a great business. Uh, remind our listeners about you and your business, if you would. Well, we're a family business and originated in Rendell County, Dublin. Um, we've narrowed our product range right down to really specialise on Irish whole wheat bread and really using good Irish ingredients. Unusually, we're using Irish flour, which is uh, unusual for a bakery of our size, and we get it from Port Arlington, which is close to us, and our lovely fresh Irish buttermilk. So we're combining the best of Irish ingredients to make high quality and now really healthy bread. People are looking at fibre and considering what they're putting into their bodies, so our product is well placed. In addition to that, we've started a few years ago bringing a gluten-free version of our whole wheat bread to the marketplace, and that's the number one selling gluten-free unit in the marketplace off the supermarket shelves and we're wow. the, the celiacs are now able to enjoy the a taste of high quality bread without it having wheat in it yeah you, you're a great example michael of a business that's focused on one thing and stuck with the knitting over the years just tell me a little bit about the thought process and the psychology behind that well, we originally were a, a, a fine food retailer with a manufacturing kitchen behind it. And back in the old days, we were making everything. And, um, I remember the ice cream. Do you remember that? Yeah, we made real Irish ice cream, you know, uh, honey and ginger. We made a lovely uh, brown bread ice cream. Um, but uh, my father looked at it and felt that he'd be more effective becoming a manufacturer rather than a retailer in the, in the tough 80s. Um, so the shop was shut down. We continued making product and sold it to thanks to Fergal Quaid and Quintworth and, and done stores. As you're doing that and getting into scale, you're, you're in one part of your building, you're freezing a product. Another yeah. part of the building, you're heating a product. So yeah. you really got to get into what you do well and pick what you do well. The strategy was to get into a real Irish ice cream with all the lovely dairy we have in Ireland. But actually the bread was something which people recognised from their past as kids in their country homes and, and kitchens and they were able to buy this really high quality uh, brown bread which was made from a recipe that my grandmother had genuinely without changing it and being delivered to the fresh the shops every day in a convenient pack yeah. and that's helped us drive our business on uh, we've some more business now and starting to get some business overseas through amazon.com in a, a bread kit so people can very easily recreate the irish soda bread for cambridge in singapore for example no way yep well okay that's great and our third guest is uh, Tom Kyo from Kyo's Chris. Tom, uh, you're very welcome to the programme. We've heard two wonderful stories here. You're going to top that, I'm sure. Tell us about Kyo's Crisps and, and your business now. Good morning, Bobby. Yes, so uh, Kyo's, we're, we're a family business based out in North County, Dublin. Three main business areas. Firstly, there's the farming end, so we, we grow a lot of potatoes out, out of North County, Dublin. That's potato growing central. We also have the fresh produce business where we, we wash and prepare potatoes for the retailers and, and the markets around Ireland. Uh, a lot of them are sold under, under the Kyo brand. And then you have the snack food business, uh, Kyo's Crisps, which uh, I set up in 2011 and uh, that's uh, you know very popular brand brand in ireland uh, we're about 13 percent market share and we export about 20 countries all around the world as as far afield as, as here in singapore yeah, yeah. yeah wonderful story and again you you say you set up in was it 2011 11. yes yeah 
and you you know you entered a quite a crowded market uh, a market that really was owned by very few players uh, and you managed as you say now to build a 13% market share as well as the overseas stuff yeah yeah it's true it's 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 an it's an extremely competitive marketplace in snack foods uh, it's dominated by you know uh, multinational players we were actually the the only irish owned manufacturer and brand of crisps in the republic of ireland yeah, and we're we're carving out that market share percentage by percentage every year. Yeah, um, a lot of, a lot of hard work there. And uh, well, listen, I wanted to talk to the three of you, if we could. And we're in Singapore. It's a wonderful environment. We're learning lots, but we've heard huge debate about uh, food inflation, and we see it ourselves in the shopping basket every week. And I, I just thought as as three food producers and manufacturers that you might have some thoughts on this. And again, maybe back to you, Ger, about uh, the cost base, managing it, trying to be competitive in what's a relatively new market in schools to make sure that you are competitive with your pricing um, when you're facing a barrage of cost increases. Just tell us a little bit about the challenges around that. Well, I suppose... Actually, food inflation for retailers is almost a good thing for us because there is no way a parent could give their children a wide and varied diet every day in schools if they were to go into a shop and buy it. It's just substantial cost and food waste. Um, You know, we're turning out 1.1 million tonnes of food waste in this country as well. Um, Whereas with us, they can have five different products, five different lunches over five days for the same price as if they were to buy one lunch and run it out for the whole week so for us it's been a benefit but definitely a challenge coming now is like the likes of eggs going up and chicken going up and grains going up you know um we're quite fortunate in the fact that we can pass on cost to parents if we needed to we haven't had to right now because we are i suppose uh, we are able to provide for so many we buy for so many and we're able it's cheaper more makes more sense to buy from us than it is to make your own individual lunches and is there very is there a lot of flexibility in your pricing model so if if the price of ham goes up by 20 cents a kilo can you move quickly to to get that back at the other side so we would work quite hard i suppose to nail down prices for the year and lock suppliers in as much as possible as we can for the year ahead which means that our parents that use us they're safe for the year and they know what their price is going to be they know the cost is going to stay stagnant but definitely now this year we're going to have to lock at i suppose in september adjusting those prices based on the agreements we're going to have with suppliers now as we go into these months of negotiation Yeah. yeah michael you mentioned uh the importance of using irish flour and sometimes you have to weigh up you know what's more important when um, and there's always a time when price can dominate where somebody says you know it's great that it's irish but i'm not going to pay 50 cents more mm. a loaf for it yeah. what's your thinking around those around that on the flower dynamic um it's interesting uh, no matter what happens with the irish harvest um, the market will follow the global price and in, in our case it's, it's set in Paris um, right. so we're not really looking at how much flour the Irish guys are producing we'll just be dictated by the millers as to what's happening with the French or Chicago pricing okay right. uh, what we're interested interested in is the Irish quality flour for our specific bread so it's no uh, accident that Irish bread developed in Ireland because of the flour we have yeah. so it's not a virtue to use it 
it can become one it's low food miles but also uh, it's supporting Irish tillage farmers and they're not getting a lot of support at the moment so for us that's part of our overall pack mix um, in terms of spot pricing specifically and you know what we've done about it price elasticity is a big issue or it's a big focus in our business. So we want to make sure our product is remains the leading and growing brand in our space, but also remains the most affordable product for uh, the customers looking to buy brown bread. So price passing on is the last tool in our box. Right. Okay. Um, and we'll try to do everything within our business to mitigate uh, price increases. Um, and, and one of the things we would do inside is, is Every Tuesday we run a lean program in our business which is project driven, trying to take cost out before we go outside the doors of our business to ask for cost increases from our trade customers. You're also dealing with the multiples yeah. um, and again, you know, sometimes when you're in that space and it's a, they're big important customers to you um, and they have a price strategy and then you may be selling to you know, a, a smaller uh, individual uh, grocery shop or whatever it might be that might have a different pricing strategy. As the producer of the product, does it concern you sometimes that you're not in control of the end price? Yes, because um, you're looking at the category and how the category performs. And at the end of the day, I want people to buy to eat more Irish bread. Yeah. They eat more Irish whole wheat bread, they'll eat more McCambridge bread. So uh, we have to be very, very clear in, in our space, myself and Tom, that we do not talk about retail prices. That's none of our business. Yeah. We certainly would have a concern about where they are set, but that is at the sole discretion of the retailer and that's the law. So we don't and can't have any conversation about retail in meetings. We, we set our price probably knowing where the, our customers want to set their price and hope that that is set at the price that makes it um, the price elasticity as good as possible and yeah. keeps customers keep buying it. So it's a very delicate balance, Bobby. I'm interested to hear your views on this, Tom. Again, as somebody who has multiple sales channels, like Michael, you, a big part of your customer base would be with uh, the big grocery chains. So. It would be yes, and and obviously you know the, the Irish consumer base is, is where we where where we where we make our, our core our core business, um, but it, I suppose we're we're at a huge competitive advantage in in our position as a family business because we actually grow our raw material, yeah. you know it's a huge competitive advantage. Yes, there's been huge increases in the cost of fertilizer, about three hundred percent, and the cost of electricity to store our potatoes has gone through the roof. And also, obviously, the, the price of sunflower oil. We, we use a really high, high quality sunflower oil to cook our crisps in. That comes from the Ukraine and south of France. So, the, you know, the prices there went up three, four hundred percent. So we've dealt with massive uh, fluctuations in cost prices over, over, over the last year. Uh, but we haven't put any price increases out to the market yet. And just as, as Michael said, it's the last thing you do. We're, we're very lucky in that during the pandemic, the Irish consumer supported our business hugely and our volume grew through that. And we're using those efficiencies of scale to help keep our cost of production down to try help not put these price increases out to the Irish market. Obviously, you watch uh, the competitive landscape as well, Tom. So if you look at other uh, crisp brands, you know, do you have a sort of a, a, a mental policy in your own head that you want to stay, 
you know, either 20 cents up or 5 cents up or 10 cents below. In other words, when you look at the competition, yeah. do you have a, your eye on where you want to be in the, in the price chain? Uh, we, we do, yes, yeah. and you know, we entered the market 11 years ago as a, as a premium sharing product with premium Irish ingredients, you know, and we really do invest in that. So our, our price point is, is premium, both, both at home and overseas, and we have had to put price increases in overseas because not just the cost of the actual raw material of the product, logistics prices for us has been a massive impact into our business, especially into the American market in the, la in the last year, yeah. and we've had to put a number of price increases in over there just to try and mitigate the cost uh, increase in, in logistics. Well listen, uh, it's been a real eye-opener and, and just a revelation to be allowed into your, your world. I think the, the whole area around price, around you know margin, around inflation, it's just such a challenging space and it, you know, it occupies the thoughts and minds of most business leaders and I'm delighted and enthused to see that the three of you are no different. Thank you all very much for joining us and enjoy the rest of the trip out here in Singapore. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Bobby. Now that was Jerry Killian from The Lunch Bag, Michael McCambridge from McCambridges and Tom Kyo of Kyo's Crisps, three of this year's finalists in the EY Entrepreneur of the Year right here from Singapore. Now, all week long, we've been meeting business people and academics right here in Singapore. I want to bring you now Karen Long, uh, who is a director of Influence Solutions, a company that helps organizations develop a trust culture. Here she is explaining to me what culture actually is. Often we see culture as some really big word, but when you look at this, what, are, what is culture comprised of? Number one, com culture it's just basically how people speak to each other. So the, con the type of conversations people have in the organization signify the culture. So if you have um, you know, high trust, um, forward-looking forward conversations, you know that the relationship will also be positive and high trust. And that is then organizational culture. So you go back to what are the, what's the quality of conversations that you're having, not just in the workplace, but also at home, because the home culture is the same thing. So you can change any, any relationship if you first change the type of conversation. Okay. Because a lot of people go through life thinking that it's the relationship that dictates the conversations they have. So for example, if he's my boss, I have boss conversations, or this is my client, I have client conversations, or this is my best friend, I have so Make conversations but actually it's not relationships that dictate conversations it's the other way around yeah. if you change the conversations you have you can change the relationship to one of deeper emotional connection high trust and one that's empowering Karen Leong there of Influence Solutions they're chatting to me about culture up next the Irish man who's anchoring at Bloomberg right here in Singapore now you're very welcome back to the program. It's nice to be in Singapore. It's even nicer to meet an Irish man, a man called Mark Cudmore has just walked in here. He's uh, uh, an interesting character. He's basically the global head of macro analysis for Bloomberg. He's a Bloomberg co-anchor, uh, European markets open, Bloomberg television, and he's all the way from Ireland to here. It started with maths and economics at Trinity, and uh, before that St. Andrews College, but now he's here in Singapore. Mark, firstly, can I ask you, in as brief a period as you can, how did you get from there to here? I thought we've just learned that I can't tell this in a, in a brief period. Um, but look, it's, I've been very, I think a lot of luck, a lot of probably, uh, 
I think uh, seizing opportunities, but it's more being willing to abandon bad opportunities. But I've basically gone through a path that's been in trading in a number of banks, four global banks, at a hedge fund, uh, and a brief stint as a failed football coach for kids. And then I went into Bloomberg News, uh, where I found somewhere where I'm probably a bit more settled longer term. That is interesting. And just a couple of things there. I know that was a, a, a whistle stop. What have been an amazing career. Um, you you learned your trade as a trader. Then you got into you know you were in layman's when it went bust. You had all these stories about you know even when you were in college you were in Goldman Sachs. So you were somebody who clearly grabbed opportunities. But you learned skills along the way. And it is interesting that you talk about you know your uh, your 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 time as a trader. Uh, then you taught English at a stage, which taught you other skills. You mentioned the football coach again. Then you, I think, worked as a writer. But it's a, it's a, it's a sort of combination of all these experiences and opportunities that you took that brought you to Bloomberg. Uh, that's absolutely the case. Yeah. I think um, I was a combination of not very good at many different careers, but I think I wasn't disastrous in any of them. So I think that I was competent enough to find new opportunities and kept on trying to the thing that I might be better at. I think, as I kind of mentioned, I realized that most people aren't very good at many things, and therefore, you know, as, lo- as long as you're not embarrassingly bad and you don't think you're any good, no one really minds, and you get other opportunities. Now, you've lots of confidence, which is obviously something that comes naturally to you, but you also mentioned something which I think a lot of people uh, maybe aren't as fortunate. You had some very good bosses and people who looked out for you in the various different careers. Yeah, I, I think it's been vital. I mean, if anyone is at the early stage of their career listening to this, then, uh, yeah, I think choosing a good boss is probably one of the most vital decisions over the company or the role because a good boss will help you find the right opportunities and create new opportunities for you to kind of move into where you want to go. And I think you can't always pick your boss and you don't always know in advance whether your boss will be good. But I think one of my skills, I'm very good at quitting jobs. I quit several jobs. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is that uh, I think I, I know a lot of people who spend a lot of time in jobs which they seem to hate and moan about, and yet they do nothing about it. You kind of go like two years later and they're still there. And you're like, but you still hate it? Or has it got better? No, I still hate it. And you're, I don't understand it. So I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't quit urgently. I'd give a place time. But if, you know, if after six months you're still not convinced and you don't have a, the right boss, then I'd get out. And if, if I had a good boss, I'd give it more time. If it was a good boss in a bad company, I'd be like, what are we going to do about this and work with my boss to find a better option? I think you're so right. And, and that thing about not being flippant about it, you know, engineering your way out maybe, but knowing that we, I'm not going to stay here because there's better opportunities for me somewhere else. Absolutely. I, and I think that, you know, it's, it's maybe a culture... In, in, in Ireland that we, we're, we're very good at kind of putting up with stuff and we kind of get on with it even though we're not happy and we, do, we don't almost feel we're entitled to like be happy in our job but you should be you should be able to find a job you're happy in it might take some time but you should be able to find it um, your work at Bloomberg again as an anchor a co-anchor you know, you're, an, you're providing analysis. A lot of people are asking your opinions about, you know, the stock market. You know, is the world going to go bust? When are we having the next recession? In, in terms of nailing your colours to the mast, is, has it become more difficult to predict things? Actually, I would say that the, the last couple of years have been a golden period again for macro 
invested in, proper macro people. I think I learned in a period where it was a bull market, but it was still a macro market in, in, the, in the 2000s. And then we had this period of, of weird monetary policy that kind of broke financial markets because financial markets were being controlled by policy. And therefore, it was just a constant world of buy the dip. And the way you made money from 2009 through to, to, to 2021 was basically just keep on leveraging up and buy more. Ultimately, it was going to work out. The only thing you ought to make sure is you don't buy enough that you go bankrupt in the short downturns. But you knew that everything was just being pumped higher in value. And I think we've gone back to a world where that's not the case. We're, we're starting to pay the bill. We're paying the bill through higher interest rates, which raises the cost of money, which means it's become much better for people who can actually do macro analysis, do fundamental analysis, differentiate investments. And I think that this new world of you don't just buy the dip blindly, that you actually have to know what you're investing and think longer term is the new paradigm we're in. And as a result, I'm super enthused and excited by markets again, because I think this is a much more fun world, uh, even if it was easier to make money before. And again, I think you make the point as well about global markets. So something, you know, one market might be stagnant, but there's loads of opportunity in another market. In other words, not to focus on one market, to think globally. I think that's an extremely valuable point because we've been through an era where US stocks have outperformed the rest of the world and they're the big, most, most high profile companies. My friends in Ireland who punt on their retail stocks, they're buying things like Tesla and, and you know Amazon and Google or Alphabet, I should call it. And you know I think there's been this mindset that these are just where you buy as default. You've got some savings, you put it into these these U.S. companies. Now the U.S. big tech stocks are some solid companies, but I think this idea of defaulting to the U.S. is a bad idea. We've been through an era for a good reason, which U.S. outperformed the rest of the world. I think we're at the start. Last year was the first year. I'm going to better check the stat. I'm not sure it's 100% right, but I think it was the first year in about 12 that the rest of the world outperformed the U.S. stock market. And I think we're at the early period of like a decade of outperformance the rest of the world. So I would say to you that I'm actually relatively constructive on many global markets, but I think the U.S. markets are expensive. So I think U.S. stock markets going to stay tough to make money for the next five, ten years. Doesn't mean you can't make money if you know how to pick individual stocks. But I think many other stock markets around the world are extremely discounted. And if you want to make disproportionate gains in the next five years, you've got to look to emerging markets. You've got to look to elsewhere in the world. Part of your work also involves, you know, interviewing CEOs who are reporting numbers, who are reporting. Um, and, you know, they're all different and they all communicate in different ways. How do you, in your role, you know, as a co-anchor at Bloomberg, how do you get the best out of these people in terms of making sure that they're honest, making sure that they're not hiding behind stuff, but really, really getting the information that some of them will be pretty guarded about giving you? So I'm two years into anchor role. I'm much less experienced than you in this. And I only feel like I'm getting to a competent level now. I feel like, no one told me this, but I wasn't very good at it for a lot of my time as an anchor. They let me stay on because of the other things I brought to the role in terms of markets analysis. I think that I'm getting to a competent level. I don't know whether I'm really good yet. Um, but I think there's some basic things. And I, I think it's just doing the basic things well. I, I would say the most important things are obviously doing the prep. And everyone knows that. And kind of really knowing the subject matter. But the, the second thing, which is, which is less obvious and hard to do when you're in live TV and you've got a producer talking down your ear and things can go wrong and news breaks and you've got to watch the clock and you've got ads coming in, is that just listening, listening properly to the answer. So, you know, ultimately the best interview is where you talking with your mate in the pub about a topic where you've done your homework and you know it, you're kind of arguing. So if you've done your homework, you know that if their answer isn't quite right or something's wrong and you can target it. Do I do that well? No, but my co-host is brilliant. Yeah. 
and again, it's using the best, the best abilities of the people in the room. You're good at some stuff, he or she is good at others, and two and two makes five. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Mark Cudmore, what a pleasure to meet you. Uh, great job, really interesting character. Keep doing what you're doing, great to see you. Thank you very much, really appreciate it. Mark Cudmore there from Bloomberg talking to me about his life and times all the way from Ireland to Singapore. We're here in Singapore as part of the EY annual CEO retreat where we've been all week. That's the first hour, but there's loads to come in the second hour, including the man who believed in Indian wine and my trip to the famous Raffles Hotel. That's all in the second hour. Stay tuned for that. to business with Bobby Kerr brought to you by Bank of Ireland Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk